Welcome to Madame. Today's special guest is Dr. Kristen Comis Dume. She talks about the challenges of motherhood and writing, Christian nationalism, masculinity, evangelicalism, and her New York Times bestselling book, Jesus and John Wayne. Please stay tuned. Mandy Ford is an artist and teacher specializing in hope-filled products, including stickers and art prints, digital and printable products, and creative courses to help your soul live a happier life. She is also the founder of Soul Care Creatives Club, a monthly membership club offering creative resources for soul care. Find out more at www.mandyford.co, follow her on her social media at Mandy Ford Art, and visit her shop at mandyfordart.com. Etsy.com. The Asian American Theological Forum, or AATF, is an online theological magazine platform that discusses theological, religious, biblical, and cultural issues of today. AATF accepts submissions of articles, book reviews, and art reviews throughout the year and publishes two annual issues in June and December. To read or submit articles and reviews, please visit our website at www.aatfweb.org. For questions or partnerships, please contact Dr. Sung-Yu Yang, founder and general editor of AATF. For sponsorship inquiries, please contact madangpodcast at gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. Kristen Kobe-Stume. She is a New York Times bestselling author and professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame and her uh, research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She has written widely for the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC News, Religion News Service, and Christianity Today, and has been interviewed on NPR, CBS, and BBC, among many other outlets. Today, I'm so excited to have her to discuss her New York Times bestselling book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. So welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. So before we get into your most interesting book, um, I thought we can just talk a little bit about, um, I think you and I have one thing in common. We both have three kids. I think I'm, I'm older than you are, a lot older than you, so my kids are a bit older. But if you could share a little bit how it was being a mother of three children, because I don't think there's many professors out there with three. I've encountered a lot with none or one or two, but there, I think three is an odd number. So how was it to be a professor and a mother, a writer? How do you do it all? 
Oh my goodness. Well, let me just speak to other professor moms out there and say it's a whole lot easier once your kids pass the age of around four or so when they don't need the constant supervision. Uh, so if you're feeling bad for your levels of productivity and you have little ones, just, just give yourself a break, give yourself some years <laughs> and uh, that work will be there when you come back to it. So, you know, my kids right now are my youngest just turned eight. And when I was, um, she was born just as I was finishing my first book. And so I had much younger kids at the time. Um, my older two are right now, 12 and 14. Um, and so it was just, it was really difficult, um, to get any sustained writing done now that they're older, you know, they're all just on the other side of the store here doing, I don't know what they're doing, but they stay, <laughs> stay mostly out of trouble and keep themselves busy. And it's, it's, it's a whole other experience. I'll also say that when I had my, um, my first child, one of my male colleagues, um, came to me and said, you know, just so you know, Kristen, um, there are seasons to every academic life. And when you have little kids at home, um, it's probably not going to be your most productive season and that's okay. And just having that permission from a, a senior colleague was really freeing for me. And so kudos, uh, to those colleagues who, um, who respect that and acknowledge that. And then I had another senior male colleague come up and tell me uh, a couple of years later after I had my second saying, you know, I know you're going to be feeling this pull between uh, work and family. And just so you know, you know, as an academic dad who was very involved in, in his, um, uh, his kids, when they were young, took some time off, he said, there will be costs like and your children will, will feel some of those that you're not always going to be there for them. You're not going to be the, the mom who brings all the snacks and has all the play dates. But he said, as an academic, you're also opening a whole world to your kids that they wouldn't otherwise have. And that has absolutely been true as my kids have kind of come along this journey with me and seeing the world through, um, kind of my engagement with, with some of these issues and some of the remarkable people and, you know, travels and so on. So I think, you know, there are, there are lots of ways to work towards this balance. It's never in perfect balance. Um, but there are, there are kind of costs and, and blessings on wherever you find yourself in that. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I wish I had uh, mentors or colleagues who said those things to me because when I was, uh, you know, my first book came out, I think 2002. And then, you know, my kids were so little. I think um, my second one was just born. And then my third one was born 2004. And then, or 2003, I'm getting all my dates wrong. But then I started teaching in 2004 when the youngest was one years old. And it was, to me, it was a nightmare. I would sit in classroom when the students were presenting and you're so drowsy. And then always the guilt of not being able to be productive. Yeah. So my next book didn't come out till I think 2001. So that's like nine years later. So it was so hard for me and I felt guilty and nobody really said anything to me. So I feel you're very lucky and you've been very productive with the three kids. And to me, it looks like you just, 
are able to do everything. Well, my first book took all. me 10 years to come out though. Right. So that was the book I, where I had the three kids. And so I finished graduate school in in 2004 and my first book came out in 2015. So mm-hmm. that was a very long time. And, you know, I was in a department that was not pushing me. Okay. Um, and, you know, for, uh, to, to keep to an artificial, um, timeline for tenure, you know, I teach at a, a, a teaching, uh, you know, university, um, And so that too was a blessing because then you can allow the work to take shape at the appropriate pace. You don't just push something out to get it on your CV in time for, you know, the tenure clock. And, um, in, in the long run, that makes for, I think a much more, um, productive, um, career in terms of maybe not numbers of publications, but the significance of those publications, I think. That's great. So I'm just, it's just wonderful to see other women uh, writing and teaching and and being out there like you are all over there are so many podcasts that you're in and so many lectures so i've enjoyed um just listening to you and reading your material reading your book so thank you for all that you do with and i feel your kids are still younger i would say once kids go to kindergarten i felt much freer yes. you know you don't have to uh, feed them like yes physically yes. feed them you just give them the stuff but now that my kids are older and I'm going to be empty nester this fall I have a ton of other worries and I remember when I was a, a bit younger someone said you know um zero to like nine or ten it's a headache but then after that it's a heartache I don't know what's better a headache or a heartache I think it's always a combination of both I can so see I'm that like, yeah. Yes, I could see that living on our horizon too. My yeah, oldest is just ready to start. Yes, fine, but me, it's like everything's on my plate, and I'm just yeah. like trying to survive. So, thank you, Kristen, for sharing. And any other w- words of wisdom, especially for younger women scholars, because I feel like younger women are now having more kids as a scholar. I've seen them like on Facebook. So, any words of wisdom uh, for these younger women scholars having families? Oh, you know, it's, it's really hard because I can offer all the advice I want. And then um, it really depends on, you know, the department you find yourself in. And and academia has changed so much, too, that, you know, even if you find yourself in a department, that's a privilege. Um, you know, if you're on the, a, the tenure clock, that's a privilege because so many academics aren't. So it's really hard to offer advice from my experience just because the, the setting has changed so much. Um, so yeah, for me, just um, setting aside the guilt of um, I should be more productive when I knew I couldn't be the exhaustion, right? I mean, I, I, I take for granted now um, what a, a good night's sleep can do because I get a good night's sleep almost every night. And, you know, there were years where I didn't at yeah. all. And somehow you function, but you can't function at, at, at your best capacity. So, um, you know, giving yourself a, a bit of a break, I think um, I also found that when I was in that, you know, kind of the thick of, of being a parent of small kids. That's when I started writing some of these shorter pieces. I started writing some, you know, blog posts and op-eds because I, I did not have the focus to write a book or even a, a full article, you know, at the time, but I could write, I could take research I already had and just, you know, put it together in a fresh way. And that's a skill set that has, has served me well, I think. So, um, oh, here's another thing I did, um, for a time, 
I, um, I didn't block other friends on social media, but I did hide them. My super productive friends who were, you know, publishing articles and winning awards. And I just knew it wasn't them. It was me. I was not in a place to hear all of their academic accomplishments while I was, you know, watching a two-year-old and nursing an infant. And so for my own, um, sanity. I just hid all those posts for a couple of years and I strongly recommend that. And if you want to hide my own posts for that reason, go ahead and do that. And just again, understand that there's a season, there are many seasons in an academic career and you might not be in the same one that I am right now. And that's totally okay. Thank you so much for sharing that, Kristen. I love your, uh, there's a season because I truly believe there's a season. And so, so much of me is regretting, you know, I was so stressed out trying to do something and then didn't enjoy my kids when they were younger. So I totally agree with you with the season. And I think blocking is a great thing. I may want to do that. Maybe I'm going to block you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like I said, you can just hide. You can just quietly hide. So it's not, you just, you just don't see the them pop up in your feed. This is over on Facebook. Facebook at the time. I wasn't on Twitter at the time, but I just, just hid some of those people really for a couple of years. And then when I was back in the game, I was like, okay, what are you up to again? I could hear about your, your little awards and your publications. So thank you so much, Kristen, for sharing that. It's, it's a joy to talk with other women, mother uh, professors. So thank you so much. And now, you know, when I think about your book, now it's a New York times bestseller. I must say, how does that feel? I must ask you how that feels because that's a dream of so many of us writers. Yeah. Well, how does it feel, Kristen, to be called New York Times bestselling author? Oh, uh, you know, I haven't gotten used to it. I think it's fair to say it still is quite new just to, you know, three or four weeks now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's one thing my editor said when he called me to tell me the news, uh, that they get the news a little sooner than the rest of the world. And he said, you know, your name is already really long. And it just got a lot longer because from here on out, this is what you'll be known as. And, you know, so it's, it's amazing. It's, it's incredible. Um, it, it, it really um, just provides opportunities, right? It provides opportunities to get the book in more places, um, to get my words in, in more spaces. And, and so I, um, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And, um, you know, just grateful to the readers because, I, um, when I started this, when I first published the book a year ago, I didn't have a huge platform at all. I was working with a big publisher, but coming from a a Christian college, right? (laughs) I'm just a historian of a history professor. And so what, um, what made this happen is the readers, the readers who, um, embraced the book, especially evangelical readers, conservative white evangelical readers included who said there's truth here and we need to wrestle with this and then started handing the book along to friends, to family, to their pastors. And there's just so much courageous engagement. There still is. And so, um, the, the New York times bestselling status is, is absolutely due to the courage of so many readers to engage the work and to engage it with humility. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I know, you know, for a topic like that, I just thought you'll have a lot of trolls and I've seen your social media and I've uh, listened to many of your interviews and it doesn't seem like it. So I'm a little surprised because the topic I thought, and you said most of your readers are from the white evangelical kind of um, group. Mm -hmm. So how can you explain why? It's a great thing. Yeah, <laughs> just, it's really good. I, I don't. Curious, like, 
myself and I'm thinking listeners maybe too. And I don't want to be right. Right. Uh, So yeah, you know, I was really bracing myself when this book came out and I'd been warned by my publisher's lawyer. The book went through rigorous and thorough legal review and vetting and which, for which I was incredibly grateful. Um, And and she warned me, um, she said, you know, you need to brace yourself for vicious trolling. And, you know, how does one do that? So I, I, I took a couple of um, actions, uh, kind of lock things down and prepare to lock things down. And um, and it didn't, it didn't happen, um, which isn't to say I don't have any critics or any trolls, um, but really, you know, I've received so many hundreds of of messages from readers, like well over a thousand emails at this point. And, and it really is at least probably one or 200 to one, um, generous and effusive versus the critics. And then the vast majority of critics, um, again, small sampling, but are, are perfectly polite. Um, and then, um, the, the, the real, um, I guess, exception to this is when the the research or the book gets picked up in uh, right-wing media. And so when Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire featured um, my work, um, there were a lot of not so gently worded um, messages that were sent, most not directly to me, most to my university um, trying to get me fired. And so um, they came eventually to me, but, um, you know, so apologies to all of the people uh, staffing the phones and email at Calvin. Um, and uh, and then again, when Ted Cruz tweeted about it uh, a couple of weeks ago and Fox News picked it up on the story, I got I got some colorful messages uh, again. But really, um, uh, you know, I think that as I was trying to figure out what was going on early on. And I, I have a little bit of evidence that this may be the case in certain circles. I think that there was a, a, a an agreement among certain folks, and particularly conservative um, men uh, in positions of power, to ignore the book, um, to not mention it. In fact, um, they would uh, call out people who did mention it on Twitter um, privately and say, "Don't do this again." Um, so I think there was a tactic to, you know, if you ignore her, she'll go away. Um, and again, kudos to so many of their own who said, you know, including conservative evangelical men, including some powerful conservative evangelical men who said, hey, guys, we need to we need to deal with this. Uh, right. This is legitimate and check her sources. And there is truth here. We might not agree with all of her conclusions on everything, but we really need to wrestle with this story. So I think I think that initially uh, there was this this period of um, s- many critics kind of holding back. Um, but I also think that this book changes the conversation in in ways that um it, it, it shifts the conversation to an unfamiliar turf, I think, for many conservative men who are very accustomed to fighting out these um, uh, these issues on a theological turf. So they've got their Bible verses, they've got their interpretations. And, you know, this has been going on for decades on complementarianism and gender roles. And what Jesus and John Wayne does is it, it moves that conversation to the turf of history. 
And it says, okay, well, where did these, where do your interpretations come from? And how are they actually different from what came before? And so you can't really use that word traditional in an uncritical way. And how are these quote unquote biblical interpretations actually deeply shaped by what's going on in culture at the time? What's going on in terms of foreign policy? What's going on in terms of Hollywood movies, in terms of American politics, right? And that's how we really need to understand these, um, you know, quote unquote biblical values. And and I, that's what a history book can do. And so I think it really moved the conversation onto a turf that um, some of these guys maybe don't um, don't quite know what to do with. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. And also, you know, your book is just jam packed with so many interesting information, statistics, and you just do such a thorough job. There's so much in there. I thought maybe it could have been expanded to like a 10 book volume or something. There is so much, there's so much wealth of information. And I feel like many of us Christians have kind of had some um, introduction or some experience of an evangelical kind of experience. And I certainly did. And, and I, and I feel like everyone who has gone through this, uh, many of us have come out or don't understand it. So your book, you tried to define evangelicalism, which was a little different from my understanding. So can you tell us how you define evangelicalism Mm -hmm. and what that means when you write this book? Yeah, you know, I think I actually didn't try to define it as much as describe it. And that's a difference. Uh, So, you know, when I started this book, I plan to do what every other scholar of evangelicalism seems to do, which is uh, drop the Bebbington quadrilateral definition of evangelicalism in the introduction and then go on and write my book. I had every intention of doing that. And the Bebbington quadrilateral, for those of you who are not history nerds, uh, defines evangelicalism according to four distinctives. So biblicism, the authority of the scriptures, crucicentrism, the centrality of of Christ and Christ's atonement, and conversionism or this born-again experience, and then evangelism or activism, so acting out of these these faith commitments. And uh, when I was looking at that rubric, I thought, this doesn't really get me very far. This doesn't help me describe what I'm trying to describe. Um, Because uh, particularly when you start to pay attention to things like race, and so if you just say that, if you, if you check these boxes um, of beliefs, and if you do, you're an evangelical, then the vast majority of black Protestants in the United States count as evangelicals. The majority of global Protestants likely going to count as, as evangelical as well, which is fine if that's the rubric you want to use. But for me as a cultural historian, um, that was not very descriptive of the historical movement that I was trying to describe, because the truth is the vast majority of black Protestants who could check their, those boxes do not identify as evangelical. Uh, because they know that there is so much more to being evangelical in the United States today than checking those boxes. And then when you go back to those boxes and you take a more careful look, you realize that white evangelicals and black Protestants might not actually mean the same things when they're checking those boxes. So biblicism, the authority of the scriptures, yes, but which passages of the scriptures are really foundational and which ones are you, are you pretty cool with just kind of ignoring or dismissing? Um, you know, the, 
crucicentrism, the centrality of, of the cross and of Jesus, you know, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus a suffering servant, a liberator, or is Jesus a conquering warrior? That's going to make, make a big difference in what it means to follow Christ. And then, I mean, just look at activism, how you're living out your faith. What does it look like in society and politics? And you just see this vast divide. And as a cultural historian, I wanted to account for that. So I see evangelicalism as white evangelicalism as a series of um, kind of alliances and networks, um, and it's in many ways um, held together through a consumer culture. So I'm talking about, did you grow up in a home um, listening to James Dobson's Focus on the Family Radio? Were you immersed in the teachings of purity culture in your youth group? Did you listen to contemporary Christian music growing up, right? Did you shop at a Christian bookstore? Um, These are the things that matter every bit as much, I would say a lot more than checking off some box of doctrines, especially when we look at survey data that shows us just how theologically illiterate many evangelicals are. And so if, if they're that theologically illiterate, then maybe theology isn't at the center of their religious identity. And maybe we have to look to some of these cultural uh, allegiances uh, instead. And so I examine evangelicalism as a consumer culture, as a series of networks and alliances. And I try to understand the power dynamics within that culture culture, um, how the boundaries are defined and redefined, who is considered inside, who is considered outside of the fold. And that's really the evangelicalism that I examine in this book. And then you also brought in the politics too, right? Yes. And then how, you know, masculinity and white nationalism. So as I'm reading, I felt like, you know, is this really Christianity? So that was one question because, um, if I compare it to my own Asian culture, Asian heritage, um, you know, before Christianity uh, was introduced to Korea, for example, you know, we, we had Confucianism, Buddhism, and Shintoism, and some other indigenous uh, religions. So if I look at Confucianism and how Confucianism defines how a woman is supposed to behave and how a man is supposed to mm-hmm. behave. Uh, a woman stayed indoors, man, you know, you worked. And so there were all these divisions and teachings. And then I thought, while I'm reading your book, I thought maybe evangelicalism is something like that here now where it's more contemporary. Confucianism is really old. And I felt like it's not totally the same, but I just can't stop making that comparison because of all this masculinity that you mm-hmm. are describing in the book and how men are supposed to behave and how women you get married and have children and you you um you know you kind of satisfy your husband <laughs> and you know the language is not the same but the end kind of product is the same yeah. between what evangelicalism is preaching and teaching and what confucianism yeah. is teaching and preaching and so I don't know, explain further. Is it really like, what is it? If yeah. you take out the biblical stuff, right? And you're, you're describing it. Can you just say more or am I really off? No, oh, there, it's, it's a perfectly uh, good question and a really important question. Um, 
it is also a theological question at its heart, right? And so this is where I kind of shift back and forth as, as a historian and as a cultural historian, this is Christianity because this is Christianity as it manifests itself, right? These are people who identify as Christians, people who, who believe that the Bible teaches these cultural things, even though I, you know, what I do in this book is showing just how much of a quote unquote secular impulse we find here. Um, but it's mass, it's packaged and sold as biblical gender roles, as, as just plain Christianity, you know, these, this Christian nationalism too. Um, you know, a lot of these folks who are, are championing Christian nationalism would reject that they are championing Christian nationalism. That's I've never even heard that terminology before. This is just Christianity, right? When that's exactly the power of this ideology, it presents as just plain Christianity. Um, and, and so as a cultural historian, and I have to take that at face value. So this is American Christianity. It's not the whole of American Christianity by any means, but it is a pretty important part of American Christianity. That said, I do hedge just a little bit um, because you'll notice in my subtitle, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith. That is not a historical claim, right? So I'm actually undercutting what I just said. Yeah, the work is a work of history and it's descriptive, um, but there's a little um, critical edge there. And that's my attempt to speak directly to Bible-believing evangelicals, right? Bible-believing Christians and say, uh, you know, actually let's, let's look at this, right? Let's, let's see how many Bible passages are really, uh, central to the teaching, uh, of, of the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, the beatitudes, the fruit of the spirit, right? All of these teachings that are just being like set aside, um, you know, the historical doctrine of the Trinity, <laughs> abandoned like, these sorts of things. Like that's what I'm trying to speak to evangelicals on their own terms to Bible believing evangelicals. So there is a bit of a theological critique here and a theological claim, but mostly the work is the work of history. And for that purpose, I have to say, yes, these, these are Christians. This is how Christians present in 21st century America, 20th century America, but then we can have some really, and we ought to have some, some theological conversations about if this is is true to the spirit of, uh, the gospel and, and hopefully a, a work of history can provide space for us to have that essential conversation. Yeah. So, you know, you, you were saying American Christianity, you see sometimes because, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm ordained Presbyterian PC USA, but I've had all this other um, denominational background, you know, Korean Presbyterian, which is very conservative. And so, you know, you also waver between conservatism and evangelicalism and, you know, where does it line, where does a line draw? But then, you know, I've had Baptist background. I've had a lot of background because my parents essentially just dropped me and my sister off at different churches. During the week, um, I think it was free babysitting and also free English classes. Yes. You know, as an immigrant family, you know, it was great for my parents. But then when I think about, you know, you said about American uh, Christianity, to me sometimes when I come across, and it's not just evangelicals, but some form that looks more like an American Christianity than this global, like Catholic Christianity, mm -hmm. what Catholic really means. I feel like maybe, maybe it's just Americanity. It's not really Christianity. It's not, it's like this weird distortion. Yeah. 
And so I, you know, I kept thinking about that as I'm reading. Are you describing this? Is it because because I had some experiences, but it was it's different. I was in Canada, so our evangelical kind of culture is a little different. Uh-huh. Surely I listened to Amy Grant like just you know over and over again, but still there was a little there, there was subtle differences. Yes, it wasn't this kind of nationalism that here that you experience in the U.S. So I don't know. I struggle with it. Is it Christianity? Is it Americanity? Can you say a little bit more to address? Yeah, Yeah, it is definitely, you know, Christianity forged in this American context. And, you know, if you want to embrace American exceptionalism, you know, so what is this American context? And it is, uh, you know, racially divided. Uh, context, uh, you know, where uh, uh, racial um, oppression kind of baked into our ideals, our founding ideals as they as they were uh, lived and denied. Um, It's an imperial Christianity, uh, you know, in terms of from from its its very origins, in terms of displacing uh, native populations and in doing so in the name of God. And in continuing to do so throughout American history uh, uh, in terms of uh, foreign policy and um, uh, American empire, um, it is also highly individualistic and, uh, you know, kind of influenced by um, um, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, um, prosperity teachings, right? There are all these flavors um, here. And, and yes, American militarism as well. And this, this particularly American conception of patriotism and, and you know, Christian nationalism. So all of that is true. Um, and so I have heard from so many readers from around the world um, process how much this does and does not apply to their local context um, from readers in Canada and the UK and Australia in particular, who will talk about how, um, you know, they don't have the same nationalism, but otherwise they have many of these dynamics are at play um, and not in their quite extreme form, but they are at play in part because of the imperial nature of this evangelical popular culture. Like you said, you were listening to Amy Grant, um, you know, the, 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 the teachings of John Piper are, are finding a home in, in China and Chinese um, house churches right now. And uh, these teachings of complementarianism and, um, uh, you know, very restrictive gender roles are and sexuality are finding a home in Kenya and Uganda. And I'm hearing from readers, oh, and Brazil, I hear from so many readers in Brazil, uh, we're looking to possibly get a Portuguese translation of the book um, as soon as we can, because it is so relevant to context there. And it isn't just that there are similarities, it is that this version of American Christianity or this corruption of Christianity that we find in America, if you will, has been actively exported for decades through popular culture, through Christian media, and through missions organizations. And so, um, and then it's received into local contexts in different ways, depending on the context, but sometimes and often it is received into already patriarchal contexts. Right. So in China, in Korea, um, right, with the, the Confucian context or, um, you know, patriarchal teachings, um, it, tribal traditions in Kenya 
And, and so the, these Christian teachings are then added to this and, and the combinations uh, can be quite toxic. And so I'm hearing devastating stories coming from these local contexts of what it looks like in terms of cultures of abuse that have developed in Christian institutions in these spaces and the similar dynamics that I, that I point to in the last chapter of my book, we see um, that taking place in, in the global church as well in these spaces. And so it really is heartbreaking. And those are the kinds of conversations that I'm having a lot right now with, with readers globally. Yeah. So you're describing American imperialism. And what I'm what I can say about the Asian context, I know, because we've been when missionaries came, you know, over 100 years ago, they kept telling us um, that our tradition was bad, we were barbaric, we were savages, we were uneducated, and everything white is good. So and, and that is still part of our cultural identity as Asians in Asia. So an example would be, uh, they would prefer to learn from a white theologian, Yes. rather than their own theologian, yes. right? So, and you see this, so this Americanity or whatever this is, it, I can see why, you know, it's being used in house churches in China and it's embraced in Korea too, because also it reinforces this male and and woman division. Yes. So, you know, women are separate and men are, you know, you just do things separately. So, and your book also talks about, and you say, you know, feminism is against God's will. That was kind of the teaching. Uh, so can you say more about patriarchy, uh, feminists? Because I myself, you know, being a feminist theologian, always trying to fight this. Yeah. And your book helped me understand this whole Trump thing. You know, I, I have, I still struggle with it. I just, I, you know, and, you know, I grew up in Canada, and we always used to say something about Americans, which I won't say, but now that I live here, I understand it. <laughs> but then I like, you help, your book helped me. Mm -hmm. So can you expand all this, you know, how evangelicals, you know, feminism is against God's will and masculinity. I didn't grow up with John Wayne, but tie it all in and explain to us and tell us what you found. Mm -hmm. Well, first, I, I want to say that there is a long history of Christian patriarchy, right? So I'm not suggesting that there isn't. I'm not suggesting that patriarchy is new in Christianity. But there is also a long history of uh, undermining patriarchy through Christianity. And you need to acknowledge both. And that is also the, 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 the case for the history of evangelicalism and American evangelicalism. So my first book was a history of Christian feminism, uh, focusing on the late 19th and early 20th century and evangelical feminism. And um, what I learned from that book was that you could be quote unquote conservative in terms of your biblical hermeneutic. You could identify as a fundamentalist. You could absolutely uphold the authority of the scriptures, be a biblical inerrantist and translate and interpret the Christian scriptures in a way that utterly undermined patriarchy, that, that saw patriarchy as going against the, the will of God as a result of, of the sin, as a result of man's rebellion. Um, now, I could say that that's right, that I like that interpretation better. Um, you could agree with me or disagree with me. That's, you know, that I, I'm not, I'm speaking as a historian. My authority comes as a historian, but simply knowing that both exist 
within evangelicalism, within the history of Christianity, both of these conflicting interpretations is critical because then at any given moment, we need to ask, why did these people think that this interpretation was the correct one? And then what did they layer on top of that biblical interpretation? Um, Right. And, And then again, package and sell as the word of God, much of which is, 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 is not found in the word of God. And so that's really my process as a historian here. And that's important to point out because I will say that many historians of evangelicalism have been evangelicals themselves. The majority have been evangelical men. And uh, I think um, evangelical men who maybe have accepted that patriarchy is biblical or that there's a very strong case for that. And if you accept that, then it doesn't really need to be explained historically. That's where Jesus and John Wayne is different. You know, knowing that, that both can be biblical and conservative hermeneutics and all that, then we have to explain why now and why this emphasis and why does, you know, biblical masculinity take this shape at this moment. And so I really focus in on the cold war era, um, both in the in terms of the emergence of evangelicalism um, and neo-evangelicalism, right. And the post-war era and asserting their, their power over American culture and in politics and the, the significant role that this, um, the assertion of white patriarchal power played in over against the threat of communism, uh, over against the anti-war movement and, you know, to support the American military and American power globally in this fight against communism, over against feminism and over against the modern civil rights movement. And what we can see is in that historical moment in the 1960s and 1970s, when a lot of Americans were questioning gender roles, were questioning white supremacy, and were questioning American goodness and greatness, uh, that American evangelicals, conservative white evangelicals doubled down on those values, and it became a kind of oppositional identity for white evangelicalism. And then so much gets layered on top of that, ultimately, I think, distorting some of the core teachings of Christianity. Uh, but we really have to understand that historical moment, understand everything else that was going on and how some of these cultural allegiances really did end up shaping core evangelical identity for many conservative white evangelicals. Yeah. So um, when when you think about the masculinity, can you say more? Because it was embraced during the elections. You know, somehow Trump, I don't know, I don't, let's not mention his name, but anyway, it worked to much of the world's surprise. Um, I wasn't that surprised he got elected, but you know, it it was a big surprise. And, you know, I had fights with my dad who embraces this and I don't understand him, but a lot of the conservatives and, you know, the line is blurred evangelical conservatism, you know, some people identify with one and then there's fundamentalism. Why is this masculinity? As you mentioned, the patriarchy has always been there and it's still present in many of these denominations, even in the mainline denomination and Catholic churches. But why suddenly is this kind of embraced? So can you explain to me why it was suddenly embraced so like wholeheartedly 
Yeah. I mean, we could, we could look at the figure of John Wayne in the 1960s and 1970s and how he became a kind of icon of conservative American masculinity in that moment because of what he stood for on screen and off. And, you know, he was, he was the good guy with the gun. He was the guy who would use violence to achieve order. Um, and what I noticed early on, uh, in the literature on Christian masculinity that embraced this, this kind of militancy is that they love their heroes heroes, absolutely love their heroes. And then I noticed that all of their heroes were white men. Um, and many of them were white men who asserted their heroism and their, their dominance, um, by, um, subduing non-white populations. So Teddy Roosevelt was a huge favorite. Um, and, you know, and then the, the figure of John Wayne is, is another great example. If you think of all of his, his, you know, uh, kind of top films. He's the cowboys of doing the Indians. And then, you know, at the Alamo against the Mexicans and Sands of Iwo Jima against the Japanese green Berets against the Vietnamese. And he's always the good guy. Um, and, and, and he's the hero because he will use violence to do what needs to be done. And the ends will always justify the means. And he became the symbol in the 1970s, um, particularly of, of, of the kind of defense of this throwback masculinity in the face of feminism, in the face of the anti-war movement. And he became a symbol of the, um, uh, conservative, uh, Republicans during that time, this is happening right during the party realignment, right. Where, where we see our, our kind of modern political system taking shape. And, um, and so that kind of militant, even retrograde white Christian masculinity served as a symbol and it united people, uh, it united conservative evangelicals and conservative Catholics and secular conservatives around this ideal and things like law and order politics really resonated again, the good guy, white guy with the gun subduing non-white populations uh, using violence to achieve order and the ends will justify the means, right? That's, that's what we see. And so among evangelicals, this, um, this vision of, of masculinity is embraced and it's seen as um, God ordained, God filled men with testosterone so that they have the aggression necessary to protect faith, family, and nation. But the problem was liberal culture emasculated men, feminists emasculated men, liberal Christians emasculated men. And that not only threatened the social order that God had ordained, but it also threatened national security. And these two things always go hand in hand in this literature. It was really astounding to see how, you know, advice on how to be a good wife also was like, oh, and this is also critical for the defense of the nation, right? Like I'm not making this stuff up. And, um, and so that warrior ideal, uh, kind of ebbs and flows a little bit through the you know 80s and 90s, um, but it it comes back strong in the early 2000s, and that's when I first started paying attention to this topic in the years after 9/11, and that's when I first encountered John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, um, a book that that um, clued me into all of this. And a couple of things struck me immediately. First of all, I came across it because my students told me I needed to read it after I had lectured on Teddy Roosevelt, and they're like, "Yeah, you really." Have to read this book because Eldridge opens with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt and goes on to sketch this vision of militant Christian manhood. That's very reminiscent of Roosevelt's. And, um, and I noticed that there wasn't a whole lot of Bible 
passages in these books either, right? They're drawing from popular culture. And I could see how this vision of masculinity went hand in hand with an aggressive foreign policy, support for the Iraq war, for preemptive war, Islamophobia, condoning the use of torture, right? I could just see this all come together. And this vision of warrior masculinity, again, the ends will justify the means. And you could just see this um, really at the center of a militant evangelical faith throughout uh, the, the 2000s. And so it was in the fall of 2016 when I, like everybody else, was watching this upswell of, of white evangelical support for Donald Trump. Uh, through the primary season and then into the general election. It was actually in the days after the Access Hollywood tape release that suddenly this clicked. All, all of those books on the Christian manhood that I had read before, I'd, I'd seen this, right? We, we've seen this before. And, um, and that's when the idea for this book uh, came that I, I realized that, you know, this is not a betrayal of evangelical values that we're seeing. This is in many ways a fulfillment of evangelical values. We just have to place the assertion of white patriarchal authority at the center of family values, evangelicalism, and then it makes sense. Thank you, because your book helps us make sense of our reality today. So I'm so grateful for you for writing it. I'm so happy that it's a New York Times bestseller. I feel like everybody needs to read your book. So as we wrap up, I know you're working on a new book. So can you just share a little bit about what you're working on now? Sure. Yeah. When I wrote Jesus and John Wayne, I have one chapter dedicated to evangelical femininity, um, but it's chapter three in the book. And, and so um, what, what I sketch out there continues, continues to hold true. So an emphasis on domestic uh, domesticity and femininity and beauty and the sexual objectification of women and all of that um, submission sweetness. Uh, but it kind of evolves over time in really interesting ways. And Jesus and John Wayne focus on masculinity and evangelical culture. And so now I'm going to pick up the other thread and I'm going to um, see what happens in terms of not just evangelical femininity, but a more generic white Christian womanhood that uh, is really uh, conveyed through popular culture, through things like inspirational fiction and mommy blogs and HGTV. And so that book is called Live laugh, love. And I'm super excited um, because it examines this um, cultural conception of white Christian womanhood uh, through the lens of an, uh, neoliberalism, post-feminism and white supremacy. So you already have the title. So is it going to come out soon? No, it's not. I'm working on it. We're researching, but the title just popped. It just came to me. I love it. My yeah. publisher loves it. So we have the title. Um, so it'll be the same publisher. It is. It's the same oh, publisher, I can't same wait editor. That one comes out. Yeah, we're I'm very sure excited. That's going to be an instantaneous New York Times bestseller, <laughs> and you well, must come back. It's. Been, I will. It's been such a joy to learn from you, from your books, and through just your other interviews, and just having you on, Madang. It's it's a true honor. So thank you, Kristen, for spending time with me and for being on here to explain a bit further and for sharing all your brilliant ideas that come from your book. Thank you. What would the world be without you, Kristen? So grateful for your work and all that you do to help us understand ourselves. When I was younger in high school, my I loved history. And I said, you know what, maybe I'll study history in, 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 uh, in university. And they said, what are you going to do with history? And I thought, yeah, I could have been a New York Times. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, you know, 
it's to say how important you are and you and other church uh, historians like Diana Butler Bass. She was my first guest on Madang. You guys are so important to us. So thank you so much for coming on Madang. Please come back when your next book comes out. And for those um, who have not read Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation, please go out and get it. Ask your libraries to order it. Use it in your classrooms, in your churches, wherever you are. Thank you again for listening. And thank you, um, Dr. Kristen Dumay, for coming on. Thank you. Invisible, published by Fortress Press, is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Show your support and pre-order your copy today. Mandy Ford is an artist and teacher specializing in hope-filled products, including stickers and art prints, digital and printable products, and creative courses to help your soul live a happier life. She is also the founder of Soul Care Creatives Club, a monthly membership club offering creative resources for soul care. Find out more at www.mandyford.co, follow her on her social media at Mandy Ford Art, and visit her shop at Mandy Ford Art. Etsy.com. The Asian American Theological Forum, or AATF, is an online theological magazine platform that discusses theological, religious, biblical, and cultural issues of today. AATF accepts submissions of articles, book reviews, and art reviews throughout the year and publishes two annual issues in June and December. To read or submit articles and reviews, please visit our website at www.aatfweb.org. For questions or partnerships, please contact Dr. Sung-Yu Yang, Founder and General Editor of AATF. For sponsorship inquiries, please contact madangpodcast at gmail.com.